Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. And I was shocked because you have all of these science organizations and others preventing any mention of a creator in the classroom. Now, to me, in order to say nobody else can talk about anything other than what I know, you better know it, in my opinion, to say that or you're stifling potentially progress. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Clifford Fry, Associate Director of the Hegler Institute for Advanced Studies Advanced Studies at Texas A&M. Welcome, Clifford, if I may call you Clifford, and thank you for accepting the invitation on our show. It's my pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you. Before we get into the topic of today, what is the Hagler Institute? The Hagler Institute brings in the finest scholars in the world into Texas A&M for up to a year. So if they, if they are a fellow of the Hagler Institute, they're coming in for three months up to one year, and they collaborate with our faculty and students. And to be a fellow of the Hegler Institute, you have to be of National Academy stature at the minimum or equivalent in your field if you don't have a National Academy in that field. Mm -hmm. And people are nominated by the faculty, and they're evaluated by a group of university distinguished professors. And some are approved for being a fellow, some are not. And when they're approved, then we help in the recruiting process. We provide financial support for this program, and I help administer the program. How long have you been doing that? Since 2013. Wow, 10 years. My, the director turned out to be a friend of mine from long ago and a next door neighbor, too. Nice. And you said, you said different while. fields. So it's not because you're a PhD in economics, but. So it's yes. not just about economics? is No, it's every single school and college at Texas A&M, from science to the agriculture to the liberal arts, whatever. And all of these people, university-wide, submit nominations for that, wow. these people to bring in. Now, when they come in, they go to their respective colleges. If you're a chemist, you, go to the, you don't sit with me. You go to the chemistry group. <laughs> I understand. So you're surrounded every day by extremely smart and intelligent people. And you yeah. actually direct an institute that collects brilliant minds from everywhere in the world. And this, to me, is a great premise for our conversation today, right? Okay. So we're not okay. talking fantasy and imagination. We're talking with Dr. Fry, who is a great scholar. He's also a father, a husband, a musician, and he's also the grandfather and role model, as far as I know, of one of our youngest and most promising undergraduate fellows. Mm -hmm. So that, that is also to say that it's a very small word, the one in which we live. I have to thank him for introducing me to your group. Well, we thank him for introducing you to us and mm -hmm. to our audience that today will be challenged. Maybe some of them confirmed other people by what we are going to discuss. Before we start today's conversation, I'd like you know, to say a couple of words of why we invite a particular guest on our show. And I wanted to specify 
that the reason we invited you on our show today has perhaps less to do with your scholarship as an economist, but I say perhaps, and nothing to do with your family ties, but it has to do instead with the fact that you were most recently the author of Is Your Ancestor a Monkey? An Exploration of Key Issues in the Evolution versus Creation Debate. Well, congratulations for the title as well, because it's, it's, it's a pretty good title. So as a regular audience knows, Books like this one are perfect examples of the conversations that we can't not have. Conversations about God and about science. Conversations that make us reflect about our evolution, but also think more deeply about the possibility of God's existence. All this using our rationality, our logic, and common sense, which we always welcome here. And yet for the non-regular audience, and probably for anyone who's new to us and immersed in, the, in today's culture, the whole topic that we're going to discuss, evolution, monkeys, genes, God, the whole topic might seem a little bit a taboo. Outside a few conservative circles, and by that I mean socially conservative or sometimes religious, it looks like the mention of the spiritual can happen only under the guise of yoga practices, sounding balls, candles. But at the Austin Institute, we like to think whether the great philosophers of the past still have something to say, whether maybe they got something right, asking certain questions and coming to certain conclusions. And we want to find out, and today we'll do it with you, if it's possible to talk about God using our rationality rather than magic and feelings and sounding balls. And so this is what we will try to do today. Now, after this intro, Clifford, and before we get to the content of the book, is your ancestor a monkey? Let me ask you this. Why in the world did a PhD in economics decide to write a book about evolution? I encountered a relative of mine that basically took the stance that kind of mentioned, implied a minute ago, if you talk about God or believe in God, it's anti-science and it's a fiction. And, you know, if you believe in a fiction, you're kind of a fool, right? <laughs> and so there are a lot of implications of that type of thinking. And what I did know, which goes back to something you said about God and science, the early scientists, like Isaac Newton, who wrote the Principia Mathematica, he, that's called one of the greatest science books ever. Well, those scientists thought that they could understand the world because God made the world. And God made mankind. And that gave them the premise to think, hey, I can understand this because we're both creations of the same entity. And what's happened since then has gone completely the opposite way, that science is over here, God is over here. Some people think anything related to God is foolishness. And so I encountered the inability to address this issue with it was a granddaughter I had. And I realized that it's one thing to believe something. It's quite another to explain why you believe it. And it's quite another to address those ideas. And I was a little leery to do it at first because I'm not a biologist. As you said, I've got a PhD in economics. But what I've discovered is that the biologists have, have a narrow view of things. And we're all in this same boat to try to figure out the meaning of all of this that we're into, meaning of life. 
but you you would none of us are a biologist, biochemist, astrophysicist, statistician. All of these things come into play when you're dealing with trying to understand source of life and evolution and all. So I got into it because of a personal reason. One, my granddaughter, and then my inability to address this issue of whether or not basically I was believing in something that was that made me a fool because mm-hmm. it's you know, fiction. So I started studying it. And the more I studied it, the more I got interested in it. It doesn't have anything to do with the Hegler Institute. It's a personal endeavor. Yeah. I got into it and I decided that in order to really address this issue, I'm going to have to actually document some things I'm finding. I don't have opinions in this book. What the book does is cite scholars. And that's very important, I think. But you know, did you know Isaac Newton wrote more about God than he did science? There's a huge book I have called Priest of Nature that, that addresses Newton's writings about God. Amazing. No, I of course, of course I didn't know, as probably none or very few in our audience did. I mean, I'm sure Professor Kuhns does get, got, you know, taught us a seminar on Plantinga and and I want to get to that. So the reason I didn't know this thing about Isaac Newton, or if I did, I forgot, is that we are educated in this past, we've been educated in this past century to think that, to even think about a rational argument for God is nonsense. I was just yeah. today, before doing this podcast, now I was just like looking at some of the things that I can find online because now I'm surrounded by people that know what intelligent design means, that know that to be a Christian doesn't mean to, that we don't believe in evolution in any possible way. And we're going to get to that. But I was like looking at what the web says. <laughs> and it's funny how the web calls any rational belief in a God pseudoscience. Right, because it cannot be proven. But what I think that one of the most interesting you point out in your book is that evolution as a soul theory for who we are and the way we behave and like is not proven. No, and I was shocked because you have all of these science organizations and others preventing any mention of a creator in the classroom. Now, to me, in order to say, Nobody else can talk about anything other than what I know. You better know it, in my opinion, to say that. Or you're stifling potentially progress. <laughs> and, you know, do you have the book there with you? Yes, I do. Here. You know, one of the things I've learned also is, if you could help me out a little yeah. bit, I'll guide you to something that yeah. you might find amazing. Yeah. Actually, the title is, Is Your Ancestor a Monkey? But it should be, Are You a Monkey? <laughs> Look at page 16. No, I'm sorry, page 10. Yes, I will. And uh, I can read it or you could read it, but just read the first sentence in the quote there and see what that says. Uh, Full genome sequences are now available for most living great ape species, including humans, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. We, that sentence says we are apes, <laughs> right? Is not even that our ancestors were monkeys. They're saying we are. Now, that's at a gut level pretty hard to swallow. Uh, I don't see orangutans 
debating each other about intellectual issues. I don't see them studying science. I don't see their mathematics. Really? So right there, you have this gut feeling on, what the hell is that? You know, why? This is science? And somebody thinks we're not just evolved from apes, but we're in the category of the great ape. So right there, you have a starting point for an intellectual investigation, in my opinion, <laughs> of what's yeah. going on. And so then anyway. you point out, I mean, it's this book is, anyone can read it in like a couple of hours, is a summary of the book. arguments that are insufficient. Yeah. What, what could you like for, you know, because we have students listening to us who are in their early 20s, brilliant students, largely, you know, you might have never heard of what you are saying or what wrote in a way that is not described as you know, believing in witches and like, which is actually instead what the culture does, right? So the culture is deleting the possibility, erasing the possibility of having rational conversations about God and instead inviting superstition. So instead to remain rational, could you point out what are other limits of Darwin's, in particular Darwin's theory? I'd, I'd be happy to. Let me back up and do one thing though for the listeners. I want to make very clear I have a great deal of respect for biologists. I have a great deal of respect for archaeologists and many of the other professions that are out there. There's no doubt evolution, in my mind, is 100% proven for changes within a species over time to adapt to the environment. The original Darwin study was on beaks of finches on an island, changing due to the environment. What I'm talking about and only talking about is the atheist view that evolution is responsible for humans. And the, if you want to visualize it, it's like, here's these chemicals that get together and they make life and the tree of life starts. All of this diverse life comes from that. And here's, here we are at the top with apes. You know, What I am addressing is the science moving from one species to another species. And in particular, if we are talking about our ancestors being a monkey, you've got to explain to me how a monkey does something over millions of years to evolve into a human. And what's required to do that? If you look at the, the DNA, which we know that, that DNA investigation and genetics throws to me this whole this whole area wide open. Because when you look at the DNA, and I don't want to give a big lecture on DNA, but they have pairs of in the structure, everybody's seen the, the helix structure. Well, that's kind of in my mind like the the uh, material structure, but each division of these of these this DNA segment of it makes proteins, which which control the development of whatever species it is. I don't see cats having mating and having dogs. I don't see dogs mating and having cats, and I darn sure don't see apes mating and having humans. Not okay. even a little so, closer, right? Like we don't, yeah. we have not witnessed as lot for as long as we have been capable of documenting. So as we far have as not. the science go, they've never seen happen what they're talking about. All they do is back up and say, "Happens over millions of years." Okay, well how? How does it happen over millions of years? In order for an ape to turn into a human, they have to generate somehow the DNA that's particular to a human that's not in an ape. And 
there's debate about this, but in one citation in the book, somebody thinks there's 600 million pairs on the DNA that are that are exclusive to humans, not in apes. The, if I had to have one question answered, how do you get over time, even millions of years, how do you get that extra DNA added? And it has to be functional. I mean, piecemeal, it doesn't work to an advantage. If you, if you say evolution is uh, the, uh, the creation of those who have the advantage in their environment, little bits of that DNA don't give any advantage. And what I was so astounded at is I've got the quote in the book where mutations decrease information. They don't add it to the DNA. We get rid of what we don't need, right? We get rid of our tail. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was very interesting, I ran across a biologist, biochemist, who says the whole foundation of this is, is wrong. You can't mix these chemicals that are the foundations of life and get life that replicates itself. They have to be living cells to begin with in order to replicate, which means that there's some source of living cells. And that's why scientists have not been able to mix all of these basic chemicals in a test tube and generate life because they're just chemicals. They're not living cells. Well, you have to be a living cell in order to replicate. And the other amazing thing, which we now know, is how complex these cells are. And talking about complexity, I think that that's how, you know, the way I discovered about your book and the existence of your book was that we were having a reading group about Professor Bujachevsky's What We Can't Not Know with the undergraduate students. Oh, yeah. That thing right yeah. there. Yeah. That is, if you get into this topic, you encounter this almost right away. Bacterial flagellum. Is what yeah, and called. let's get to the flagellum, but I want to stop you and and, and we, okay. we go there. I want to say this thing about complex systems. The reason your book came up was that at some point, Professor Buczewski mentions a biologist that you, I think you also have a quote about him in your book, that is a proponent on intelligent design and, and says, you know, we cannot be satisfied by evolution only because we're complex systems. And he makes this very, I think, very useful example of a mousetrap. And, and he says, you know, a mousetrap doesn't work because you had a non-working, not perfect mousetrap that then became, you need all the pieces to be put together when they are already the best mechanisms for it. You need the wood, you need the iron, you need the... So, and that is true of every possible complex system. Now we know that human beings are very complex system, probably women even more, but, and so is our society. So we we can't think that there is a combination of multiple factors that comes together and generates it. So that is, that is an added. Uh, and so speaking of this, you know, your grandson said, yeah, my, my grandfather has a little booklet about this, I think, <laughs> you know, and so that, that's how I discovered about it. But let's go back to the image that you were showing us. Well, it relates to exactly what you're talking about. And I did meet that gentleman one time, which, which is great. This is a picture of this bacterial flagellum. It's hard to see everything about it, but let me just read just a, just a little bit about it. An amazing biological machine within a cell is the bacterial flagellum. The engine and filament are amazing. The filament is this green tail thing, okay? And it's actually outside the cell, and this engine is inside the cell. 
And it says the filament can rotate at 1,000 revolutions per minute. It can then abruptly stop and start in the opposite direction. All components must be present and working for the flagellum to function. Is this complex machine at the minute cellular level a creation of nature? And one has to deal with that issue. And right away, you look at that thing, and that looks like something's designed by intelligence, which gets to what you mentioned about intelligent design. Intelligent design is kept out of the biology courses. Yeah, it's called pseudoscience. It's anti-science, because what it leads to is if we have an intelligence responsible for this world that we're looking at, then it's a supernatural intelligence, which leads to a god, which we don't want in class. Yeah. (laughs) And we're not saying, right, because you end with the captions, like, is this complex machine at the minute cellular level a creation of nature? We're not saying no. We're just saying, is it completely not credible that nature is not enough? I mean, I don't think so, but at least let's leave the question open and and admit we don't have an answer. Also, I want to ask you, is every stellar scientist a non-believer or... Oh, no. Many uh, many physicists, for instance, I didn't collect the data on biologists, but I did encounter where most of the Nobel Prize winners in physics are Christians. In fact, there's a quote in my book that if you want to debate about God, the physics department has to go to the philosophy department to find somebody because physics <laughs> department's no use. But the intelli- you, you raised the issue, really, could nature generate that? And that is a judgment. But for instance, you're familiar with the Easter Island statues, right? Mm -hmm. Pyramids, Mount Rushmore faces. You think nature can create those? I don't think over millions of years, nature is going to create Mount Rushmore faces. That's and instead, if we believe, right, but if we believe that nature is the sole responsible, we should admit the possibility. We should admit the possibility in this. And also, because I know that there are people that believe in multiple infinite number of universes with infinite number of, you know, possibilities. And so there might be a universe where a pyramid is a product of just coincidences and, you know, a a series of changes in the shape of stones and like the wind. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. But, you know, is that not, is that believing in a fiction or not? I don't know. And isn't, no, or the question is, isn't mathematics that say something like that is possible, but there's no evidence of a thousand universes out there. What we are dealing with as humans is the universe we're in. And maybe there's other ones out there, but it doesn't pertain to us particularly. What I'm talking about is science. And I don't believe in a thousand universes out there can be shown to me as science. Yeah, or or okay. as you know, so, as Professor Buczeski writes in his book, isn't it more difficult to believe in millions of universes where everything might happen at some point, and there could be a thousand Clifford Fries and a thousand Mariana Orlandi's yeah, different right. versions, right? Like, than to believe in a one God. And let me say, the idea of God's bizarre. I'm not saying it's easy. Mm-hmm. The idea of, of God out there is bizarre. Back to what we were talking about just a minute ago. I really don't believe nature can create the Easter Island statues. I don't believe that nature can create the faces on Mount Rushmore. I don't care how many millions of years. I see nature, hurricanes, tornadoes, all kinds of things like that. I see 
bacteria, but that bacteria is alive where it come from. But that's my judgment. I can't tell you that if you believe nature can create the pyramids and the Mount Rushmore faces, I don't think I can debate with you except that. To me, we have to recognize that intelligence has designed some things. It's taken for common if you go into ancient caves and there's a carving of deer and people stabbing a deer with spears. They take it for granted an intelligence put that up there. Oh, look what the cavemen carved. And yet they don't want the idea of a intelligence behind the creation. Let me make clear too, the intelligent design argument doesn't say God. It just says, I look at this and I think an intelligent design is necessary for that construction, that it isn't a random aspect of nature or even evolution through mutations or survival of the fittest or anything like that. Intense. Uh, Yeah. So we had a discourse in the past about Plantinga book and I was rereading, I I don't know how many in our audience are familiar with C.S. Lewis and his book, Miracles, but for those that haven't read it, I would strongly recommend reading it. And C.S. Lewis in the 40s basically brought back the argument from reason, probably he also mentioned Newton's belief, but his his argument is a very simple one, but he, he basically says we cannot be naturalists and think that we are also right and that what we find is true. Because if it is true that we just evolved, then we could just just evolve to believe certain things, but we have no reason to believe that those things are also true. And this is called like the argument from reason. And the argument from reason is, you know, or, or stated differently, like if we weren't made to be intelligent, that there would, there would be absolutely no reason why even what I am telling you and you are telling me makes sense. Probably, maybe this dialogue could be completely nonsensical. We'll just live in a world where by mere chance, it makes sense to some people. And our words have some sort of meaning. I find, I personally find it a little harder to believe than to believe in an order. Yeah. So, and, and you know, to me also, I'm changing the subject just a tad, but the biggest damage of this belief that a God is is something that's anti-science, is that it affects your perception of what you are and what this life is. I mean, in the evolution story, they don't like to say that. I'm talking about the atheist, pure materialist evolution story. You're not, you're not valuable. <laughs> There's nothing valuable about a pile of chemicals. I mean, that's what we are. We've evolved through this pile of chemicals. And we are a pile of chemicals. And when this pile of chemicals ceases to exist, we cease to exist. That's it. Yeah. The tragedy with that is also if, if, if you detach the two things, you can use science the way you want. And I don't, I don't like making always the example of the Nazi concentration camp because I'm tired of the fact that we need those examples to remind ourselves how poorly we can use our knowledge. Right. Uh. I, I would wish to live in a world where we don't need to be constantly reminded of how wrong science without principle has gone, right? Well, because that was... The- that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, it's, and even on a very personal level, I mean, if there's no... Chemicals don't have any truths to them. You know, they don't have external truths. 
So therefore, if you believe in the materialist evolution story, there are no truths. You just decide what you want is true. Um, and if you can get away with things, uh, there's nothing wrong with it because there is no wrong and right yeah. in chemicals. <laughs> it's also very, very hard to feel loved, right? Because, well, the woman in front of me doesn't love me. I just have the right smell. And by, you know, a circumstance of evolution and survival, she's going to tell me that she loved me, but she doesn't really, right? That's very interesting because science cannot measure how much somebody loves somebody. They, they can't measure how beautiful somebody is. They can't measure the degree of love. They can't uh, measure a lot of things. So in our daily life, we have obvious limits to what science can tell us. We do. And we definitely do. The, the the idea that God can't be allowed in the classroom is anti-science or that the idea of intelligent intelligence can't be allowed for the responsibility for what we're observing is it's a myth. I can let me let me say this. I don't know who made Easter Island statues. I hope hope everybody knows what we're talking about. Let me just yeah, show yeah. make sure because most people I'm sure know, but Let me get it. Just and I, in the meantime, I want to invite everyone to get your yeah. book just to have a summary of all the arguments. It's just like it has a perfect use to just start a lot of conversation and go then find, you know, more, yeah. um, more resources if, if you are interested. Yeah, you have it on page 29. But I do not know who created the Easter Island statues, but I can study them carefully. If it, I can apply all kinds of science to study them to try to figure out what they're made of, how they, how they may have been put together, how they're made, where, where did the rocks come from that, that, to go into these. So the idea that I don't know who created them prevents me from science is, is nuts. I mean, they ought, to, they ought to allow intelligent design into the classroom as, a, uh, as an intellectual. As, a, as an innocuous, I mean, at, at, you know, at worst, an, an innocuous thought or school of thought. And I'm with Stuart Mill on this. Like, I, I do think that there should be, every opinion should be, should be voiced. And I, I wonder though, because I mean, you're not 22, right? You're, you're still young for bringing a grandfather, but you're not 22. And I'm sure that things were different. So the difference between the way older generations addressed the issue of God and the way the youngest ones do, right? So What do you think is the cause? Like, do you think it was the, 60, the 68 and the sexual revolution? Like, what, when did this change happen? That, and, and if you can point, I mean, I don't know if you thought about it, like how were we unaware of what was going on and how the issue, the question of a God, which could also be a supernatural power. I mean, we don't need to have the Christian God necessarily. Like, but when was it that that idea of a, a creator outside was no more welcome? I don't know. That's a very good question. It happened in my lifetime because when I was growing up, even though God wasn't talked about in a classroom, it wasn't made fun of in a classroom. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, there was, in fact, we had prayer in the classroom. It's very important to get rid of the, I'm going to, I'm going to phrase it in an economics yeah, discussion. Please. If you want people to, uh, be in line with the government. You can't have them think highly of themselves as individuals. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's maybe, that's another topic that would take a while to flush out. 
But if you well, look, there is no, no. I, I think that our audience knows exactly where you're going because the existence of God transforms us from slaves to free, right? Well, and it values the individual. You know, at the time that uh, Christianity came, which isn't the only religion, but when Christianity came around, the Roman leaders were viewed as gods. The idea that individuals were important was completely dramatically against what was what was uh, the story then. You worship the leader of Rome, you know, that sort of thing. Well, now you they've got to get rid of a lot of that individual importance in order to get to more social control by government, in my opinion. Okay, I see. So you blame it as a, as a political question. I, 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 don't pr- know. I probably agree. Yeah, it I is. mean, I don't know the answer to it. I just, now I'm looking at it only from an economist standpoint. Yeah, but, it is, but you did say it happened, it happened during your lifetime. Yeah. So it is and a reason. I don't know exactly time. when, but we were, no one viewed you as foolish for going to church. And in fact, the difference between me as a kid, which I'm not even going to go into it all, the church has made me a lot better person. I want to ask you something personal too, but also there is the final chapter that you have is also, I, I call it scientific, right? Because you're documenting things that happened and there are documented. Now, what do we make of it up to the reader? But it's a chapter about life after death experiences. So we had a reading group here on, on the art of dying, but would you tell us like a couple of things that maybe you discovered by writing that chapter? Well, I have not had any near-death experience is what they're called, which is a misnomer because it's actually dead people that are coming back to life. I would recommend if somebody wants to get into this area, look at uh, Mary Neal's story. She was a surgeon MD at University of Southern California, was pure in the science realm, didn't even think about the religion part. And she was a uh, kayak specialist too. I mean, been on all kinds of rivers and than in difficult situations in the kayak. She was a professional kayaker almost. But he went down to the Amazon, got trapped underwater for about 20 to 30 minutes. And this, this is all documented evidence. And she describes what happened to her. And it was basically a consciousness and a soul body, so to speak, that existed separate from the physical body. That cannot happen in the evolution story. The other thing that's difficult in the evolution story is to describe consciousness. Cells might be living cells, but my consciousness is not related to individual cells. You can cut off my arm, I'm still conscious. Cut off this arm, I'm still conscious. I have a, an overview consciousness that how do you get that from cellular development and mutations and survival of the fittest? How do even the animals have this consciousness? It's part of life. Um, and that's very difficult to explain where consciousness comes from. But I have studied a lot of near-death experiences. But I would say, is there any evidence for a God? To me, yes. The idea that we have consciousness and the and evidence that our we have a body existence independent of our physical body. That's the importance of near-death experiences. It's a glimpse of maybe the afterlife, but what it does also is disprove the idea that we've evolved from chemicals. 
Yeah, and for those who are more brainy in the audience, you know, I, I would say a, an easy entry point to go on the rationality of these arguments is C.S. Lewis' Miracles, for sure. And then Where the Conflict Really Lies by Alvin Plantinga for the ones that are more into, you know, even using equations to explain why a merely naturalistic view of the word does not work and does not make sense. So these two books, strongly recommended. I will, we will link to them in the episode along with your book, which can be a great starter for conversations. I would like to add something about your personal story. And the reason is because I very much value what you did about it. But also I want to do it because I think that a lot of people have stopped believing or even accepting the idea that it could be a God and might even be a good one due to hardships that they have encountered in life and due to the crosses they bear, which I mean, probably funny to use the word cross to speak of why we don't believe. But does the hardship of life make it harder to believe? And I ask this question because I know that for someone who's very close to you, you had, to, you had some hard moments, if not a hard life. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I have a daughter with what's called Rett syndrome. It's not Tourette, it's Rett, R-E-T-T, named after Dr. Andreas Rett uh, in Austria that first identified this disorder in children. It's a developmental disorder. And it goes to the idea that everything has to work perfectly too in this DNA. The MECP2 gene controls other genes in the development process. And Rett syndrome is a is caused by a deficiency or a mutation in this gene, in the MECP2 gene on the X chromosome. And because it's on the X chromosome, if males have it, they have X and Y chromosomes. If males have it, they don't really survive. Uh, females can survive if they have two Xs. And so you have, anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that. Let's get back to what your issue is. And I can tell you that facing difficulties has helped me grow as a person. I mean, it's plain and simply. Now, do difficulties like this make people grow or better? And this is where I, I have to credit some of the religious side of me or the spiritual side of me. I know people who couldn't handle this situation at all. Divorces occurred. People just left because they didn't want their life dominated like this. They weren't going to give of themselves to this handicapped person. And they shortchanged themselves. But a lot of them went in drugs or alcohol when they faced these difficulties. Who knows? You, you have to choose some path when you face these difficulties. And not everybody can handle them. But I don't think I could have handled it very well without help. And that help was spiritual help. I didn't get a vision from God or anything like that. I don't have a, I can't pick up the phone and talk to God when I want to. Don't, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm talking about the principles that are taught in, in um, a lot of the uh, spiritual things that I've encountered and help from people who were spiritual. That helped a lot. Is that, am I too vague or am no, I? No, I think, I think you answered the question so that the argument that then why evil? Well, probably we don't have an answer, but we can say 
However, you know, considering the evil in the world, there is a way out that probably from an evolution standpoint makes sense, which people is people choose evil. People choose evil. There's not a mystery about it, in my opinion. You know, the concentration camps you brought up. That's people people choosing evil. There's a lot of cartel evil. There's a lot of lot of evil around. People are choosing this. And that's it's too bad. Hey, you, the, I, the I said, you know, price for it, but it's it's not it's created by people. I wanted to say it's commendable what you did. You have a, this daughter with Rett syndrome. You're very involved in International Rett Syndrome Foundation. You there is a, a video of an interview you sent me. Uh, we can link to that too, where you know it's you and your daughter, and you explain, you talk a little bit more about what it means to be the father of, of a daughter that you know is not functional alone and without your help. I wanted to say, if you could tell the listeners about your book and about, you know, whether our ancestor is a monkey or whether we are monkey, um, if you could tell the listeners one more thing that we haven't said that you would like to say that I forgot to ask. or We are given this intellect in order to decide some things. Because you are not a biologist or a statistician or whatever, you're still capable of addressing these issues. And you've got to address them. You've got to decide what you're going to believe in. You can't just flow with the wind. If you want to stand for something, if you, you've got to believe in something. And you shouldn't blindly believe in anything. And I don't think that a belief in God is a blind belief. And what my experience is and what my investigation uncovers. Not by me, but from what others have said. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. And you know, you, what you just said reminded me, it's a perfect, closing moment. So I wanted to mention how seems the case that great scholars have one more thing in common. They are very often great musicians. And I'm thinking of Professor George in this case, uh, who likes to play this banjo. And I know that you also play and you have a band. And I also think you play for sick people, right? Like you do, you do, you play in hospitals. And so I was, you know, I was wondering if there was anything that you would like to play for us to close this, uh, this episode. And if you have your instrument near you, but what you just said reminded me of a song that is the song that another friend, professor here at UT, elected as the song of his family, which is that country song. You got to stand up for something or you'll bow for everything. Uh, for anything. Yeah. So, you know, when you said you got to choose what to believe. So, yeah, you can choose to believe in materialism, but it's a belief. You're going to believe it. It's not going to be... believe in something. If you don't believe in God, you're going to believe there is no God. You're going to yeah. you're going to believe something. Just investigate and you're capable of deciding. So well, do we close yeah, with a song like, you want to close? Play a song if you want to hear that, little, that would be great. I hope the audio is, is going to be good, but like I know that we can work on it. So this is a um, song I wrote when I was in my 30s for my wife, and my wife's name is Judy. So this is called Judy Lou. I've got several guitars. Yeah, but being the Institute for the Family and talking about marriage, I think that there's nothing better than this. And I invite the other 30 years old listening, you know, to maybe do something similar. <laughs> He who travels fastest goes alone They say he who travels fastest goes alone But I doubt that very much Cause when I want someone to touch I gotta stop till I've satisfied my soul And I love my little woman Judy I love my little woman, Judy Lou. 
that she's a darling of my heart Tears me all apart I love my little boy, Judy Music is the language of the soul Ah, oh, come on now, it's more than that I know You can make me feel alive with a boogie-woogie jive But only darling Judy Lou sets me aglow And I love my little woman Judy Lou Love my little woman Judy Lou She's a darling of my heart Tears me all apart Love my little woman Judy Lou Is there a question that ever bothers you? Is the clock a circle time is passing through? Is loyalty the same as faith? Is a song a graceful place to say I need you, my darling Judy Lee? I love my little woman Judy Lee. I love my little woman Judy Lee. She's a darling of my heart. Tears me all apart. I love my little woman. Thank you. There's many other verses to it that I didn't sing. This was wonderful. I think it's a perfect closing. And I look forward to meeting you in person. And this Judy is a very lucky woman. Thank you. Thank you for this. I'm sure our audience will appreciate it. Maybe it's going to become the new hit of the (laughs) summer here at UT. But we look forward to having you here in person. And thank you very much again for your time, for your book. Mm. We'll link to it and I encourage everyone to get it. Thank you. Thank you much. Take care. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.